As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. You are listening to KLRN Radio, where liberty and reason still reign. Hi, I'm Jay Farner, CEO of Quicken Loans, America's largest mortgage lender. Spring will be here soon, so if buying a new home is on your to-do list, right now is the time to call Quicken Loans. Learn about which mortgage options make sense for you and get a jump on your competition. With our exclusive Rate Shield approval, the low rate you lock today is protected for up to 90 days while you shop for your new home. With a Rate Shield approval, if rates go up, your low rate stays locked. But if rates go down, you get that new, even lower rate. Either way, you win. Talk to us today at 800-QUICKEN or go to rocketmortgage.com to take advantage. Here's another great reason to work with us. For a record nine years in a row, J.D. Power has ranked Quicken Loans highest in the nation in customer satisfaction for primary mortgage origination. Again, to lock in today's low mortgage interest rate and get the security of our exclusive rate shield approval, call us today at 800-QUICKEN or go to rocketmortgage.com. For J.D. Power award information, visit jdpower.com. Rate shield approval only valid on certain 30-year fixed rate loans. Call for cost information and conditions. Equal housing lender. License in all 50 states. NMLS number 3030. Thoughts of suicide may feel impossible to overcome. But with help and support, you can find hope and meaning. Call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK to speak to a counselor or visit suicidepreventionlifeline.org. It's free. It's confidential. It's available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And even if it feels like it, you are not alone. Hey, I'm Andy. If you don't know me, it's probably because I'm not famous. But I did start a men's grooming company called Harry's. The idea for Harry's came out of a frustrating experience I had buying razor blades. Most brands were overpriced, overdesigned, and out of touch. At Harry's, our approach is simple. Here's our secret. We make sharp, durable blades and sell them at honest prices for as low as $2 each. We care about quality so much that we do some crazy things, like buy a world-class German blade factory. Obsessing over every detail means we're confident in offering a 100% quality guarantee. Millions of guys have already made the switch to Harry's, so thank you if you're one of them. And if you're not, we hope you give us a try with this special offer. Get a Harry starter set with a five-blade razor, weighted handle, shave gel, and a travel cover. All for just three bucks, plus free shipping. Just go to harrys.com and enter 5000 at checkout. That's harrys.com, code 5000. Enjoy! KLRN Radio has advertising rates available. We have rates to fit almost any budget. Contact us at advertising at klrnradio.com.
Bullshit, Sunday night on KLRN Radio, America's podcast network. Welcome to In the Crease. I am your host, J-E-double-F. It's time to gather up some flowers, put on your plague mask, and drop that puck on the bubonic plague. The following program may contain coarse language, adult themes, and bad attempts at humor. Listener discretion is advised. Tonight's episode is one that I, as well as my executive producer, have wanted to do for a very, very long time. Plague? Check. Medieval? Check. Messed up stuff? Triple check. Also, the show was one I did not want to do on politics-free Friday night, because even though I will largely leave out the modern-day politics, the subject is one that is ripe for the current year 2020. I would like to add... To the normal disclaimer for tonight's show, the subject matter discussed at times is vile, disturbing, and the imagery may not be for all listeners. Additional listener discretion is highly advised. So with that, let's begin this journey in the DeLorean, back to the time of 1346 to 1353. In the mid-14th century, the medieval world experienced one of the most devastating pandemics to ever strike humankind, the Black Death. Between 1346 and 1353, this disease, commonly thought to be some form of bubonic plague, swept across Europe from the east in a clockwise motion, tightening around the medieval world like a noose. When it was finally over, at least half of the population was dead. Social structures, political and economic infrastructure, family relationships, religious institutions, and more were all dramatically affected and, in many cases, irrevocably altered. To start off, let's deal with two common misconceptions. First off, this disease is not called the Black Death because parts of the body of people were infected, turned black. The plague was often called the bubonic plague because in one form it produced large lumps or buboes around the lymph nodes, often at the armpit or groin. People seem to assume that the term Black Death refers to the collar of these buboes. Rather, the term Black Death is used to suggest the horror of the epidemic, not the collar of its symptoms. It was a dark, black, terrifying time. This leads to another misconception. No one in the Middle Ages called it the Black Death. It was the Great Mortality or the Great Pestilence, or even, in some cases in England, the Blue Sickness. But it was not called the Black Death until centuries after it initially spread through Europe, and later historians looked back and tried to write about it. But let us do a little bit of prep work on what the world, or more specifically, medieval Europe looked like at around this time. The medieval model of society 
had begun to change a little by 1340 for a few reasons. One was the rise of the merchant class, which was able to develop in part because of a population boom that occurred between 1000 and 1300. Over the course of those three centuries, the population of Europe doubled from about 75 million people to around 150 million. This was due to a few influences, one of which was a period of global warming called the Little Climactic Optimum, the Medieval Warm Period or the Medieval Climate Optimum, that increased the growing season. Another influence was advanced in agricultural procedures. <clears throat> the population boom created a sudden land crunch, with the practically doubling of the population in just three centuries, pretty much all arable land that could be worked was brought under the plow. With this land crunch, many people found themselves driven to the city and found a way to make a living. This created, for the first time since the fall of the Roman Empire, urbanization on a significant scale in places like London, Paris, Rome, Florence, and Milan, an increase in trade and the movement of goods to and from far-flung locales served to create a new class that didn't quite fit into the three estates model. While the merchant class could technically belong to the 90% of those who work, the members of that class started to look a little more like the top 5%, the nobles, or those who fight. A shrewd businessman could make enough money to afford expensive clothes and actually educate his family. Now this is important because we go along, the impact of medieval society will be littered throughout the shows. As I mentioned, in this time of feudalism, and yes, 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 I know, the term feudalism is more of a 17th century term used to describe this time frame, but hey, it's the word we all know. So, in the society, or the three estates, were the nobles, the clergy, and the peasants, or rather those that fight, those that pray, and those that work. About 5% were nobles, another 5% were the clergy, and the remaining 90% were peasants and the newly emerging merchant class. And there is an interesting 14th century poem, Piers Plowman, that discusses the attitude of the people of the time. I shall work and sweat and sow for us both, and labor for you my whole lifetime, as long as you live, as long as you promise to protect Holy Church and me from wasters and wicked men that troubled the world. Also, that you go hunting often for hares and foxes, for boars and wild bucks that break down my hedges, and that you send out your falcons to call the population of wild birds, for they come to my farm to devour my grain. Now, it's a little better in the old English, but <laughs> I sure as hell was I have enough trouble with New English, I wasn't even going to try to read it in the Old English, okay? That passage demonstrates quite clearly the ideal of the three states. People belong to the order to which they were born, and if society is going to function properly, then there's no moving outside of one's estate. Take in the fact that society is predominantly Christian and agrarian, aka cultivating the land. Now, we have a little bit of lay of the land, touching briefly on the society of the time, and setting the stage for what will come. In Europe, for about a decade in the middle of the 14th century, it must have seemed like the world was coming to an end. Sound familiar? The Black Death made its way westward, killing a third to a half of the population of the medieval world. The disease exhibited a confusing variety of permutations. And here's the thing, though. The plague didn't just happen. 
only in the 14th century. The Black Death of the 14th century was such a traumatic event that it, it's difficult that there could have been anything like it before, or that anything like it could happen again. But massive plagues did occur before and after in the 6th century, and so-called Plague of Justinian had contributed to the final disintegration of what was left of the Western Roman Empire. In the 19th century in Asia, plague would once again cause death, suffering, and panic. It is the 19th century plague and modern medicine's attempt to understand it that would ultimately offer us some of the answers about the Black Death and the earlier plague in the 6th century. In order to understand the epidemiology of plague and how it impacted the, the medieval world, let's start by examining what scientists were able to figure out by studying the disease in the modern era. The year is 1894 and the place is Canton, China. <laughs> Go figure. Starting a few years earlier, there have been outbreaks of plague in the Yunnan province and in our friends in India. While these outbreaks were not as severe as either the 6th century plague of Justinian or the 14th century Black Death, they were still scary. Estimates suggest that somewhere between 50,000 to 125,000 people were infected and 80% of those contracted plague would die from it. Two scientists working in Hong Kong, a Japanese student of Robert Koch named Shibihastora Kat. Katasato, sorry, and a Swiss French student of Louis Pasteur's name, Alexander Yerson, also simultaneously managed to isolate the cause of the plague in the laboratory after careful examination of tissue samples of those infected. Katasato was a little quicker in discovering the source of the plague, but Yerson's description of the bacterium was more thorough and accurate. From 1894 on, the bacterium that causes plague has been called Yersinian. Uh, pestis in Yerson's honor. A few years after isolating and identifying the bacillus, Yerson identified rats as the prime carrier of the disease. In 1898, a scientist named Paul Louis Samon argued conclusively that the disease is transmit transmitted to humans when fleas jump from a rat to a human being and bite that human being. What this means is that the plague is zootonic. Uh, like smallpox and some other diseases. It originates in animals and then jumps from animals and infects the human population. So how does transmission work? Many kinds of rodents carry plague. Fleas that feed on rats, guinea pigs, and other uh, similar animals like squirrels can become infected with the plague. But just because a flea is inf infected doesn't mean that it's infective. The way the fleas become infective is due to a feature of their their system. They they have not only a stomach, but also a proventriculus, uh, pro which acts as a valve that regulates the food that the flea is ingesting and trying to get to its stomach. When a flea feeds on a plague-infected rodent, the nourishment doesn't pass to the ventriculus as quickly or as easily as it would if the flea were feeding on a non-infected rodent. A blockage of bacteria and blood forms in the proventriculus so that the nourishment can't get to the flea's stomach. Now, the very hungry flea starts biting more aggressively and frequently in order to get some nourishment. Yet the blockage is just getting bigger and bigger. Finally, the flea system realizes what is happening and regurgitates the blockage out. Regurgitated matter goes directly into the system of whatever the flea is feeding on. 
If it's a human being and the flea has jumped there from, say, a black rat, then the starving flea will aggressively regurgitate, feed, and repeat. Studies conducted in the 1970s suggested that it was crucial that the biting flea be a rat flea, and also that the fleas typically found on humans don't really transmit the plague, and the proportion of plague in the blood of an infected human didn't seem to be enough to cause blockage in the digestive system of fleas that are usually found on people. So the theory went, you had to have rats as hosts, and then those hosts needed to die, so the rat flea was forced to find a new food source, and it would not typically have chosen, in this case, humans. Although the same bacillus seems to be primarily responsible for the three plagues of the late, uh, late antique world, the medieval era, and the modern period, their epidemiology and entology seem to differ a little bit, suggesting that the bacterium itself has undergone some revolutionary or evolutionary shifts at different times in its existence. So, what form of the plague were there? So, there's the buponic form, where you get large swallow or swollen areas around the lymph nodes, usually the neck, groin, and armpits. If you got this form, your survival rate was expected to be around 18%, and human-to-human transmission seems almost impossible, though lancing of the buboes could make it spreadable to the person doing the lancing, so no knighting of the buboes, okay? And additionally, reports of if you lance the buboes, the smell was horrendous, and actually people in the room that would lance it would actually pass out from the smell. That's how bad it is. But there was also a pneumonic form. Now, pneumonic plague was the second most common form of plague. And in this case, Yersinia uh, pestis has shown up in shop in the, the sufferer's respiratory system rather than the lymphatic system, as in the case of the buponic form. It starts usually with a patient zero who has been infected with the bubonic form of the disease, which then makes its way from her lymphatic system into her respiratory system. This form of plague is easily transmissible from person to person. A doctor, a friend, or relative taking care of someone infected with the pneumonic form of the plague is going to come in contact with blood, sputum, or saliva containing the bacterium, and will usually themselves become infected unless someone is alert enough to recognize this for what it is and put on a hazmat suit, which really weren't available at the time. And the way a person died was usually from drowning in their own blood. The good news, if you want to call it that, the time from onset of symptoms. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. To death is usually just two days. The bad news, the suffering is intense and the survival rate is less than 1%. Lastly, there is the uh, septemic, sept, uh, I, I come, another form. The third and least common form of plague is the septicemic, there we go, form, which is an infection of the blood. Like pneumonic plague, this form can start out as bubonic. Then the infection can move to a different bodily system. If you have septicemic plague and it's pretty well advanced, your blood starts to lose the ability to clot properly. If your blood doesn't clot, it starts to seep into other parts of your body, like your skin and internal organs. Fun, right? So maybe I should have put a disclaimer that you should probably also not eat during this show because, eh, sorry guys. And, and although there have been three major outbreaks of the plague in the 6th, 14th, and 19th centuries, the plague actually did not completely disappear in between. Indeed, it periodically flared up again after the initial waves. The Black Death of the Middle Ages kept reappearing, albeit in, in milder forms, with some regularity in Europe until the 17th century. So what's scarier? The plague still exists today. Every year, there are about 5 to 10 cases in the U.S., and in 2015, there were at least 15 cases, usually due to people coming into contact with plague-infected rodents in mountain or wilderness areas. And if the doctors can figure out what it is quickly enough, the plague can usually be easily cured with a course of antibiotics. Unfortunately, because plague is so rare these days, doctors don't always recognize it when it appears. So it's due to the plague outbreak in India, sorry friends in India and China, at the end of the 19th century, that medical science was able to identify the cause of the plague and figure out its modes of transmission. And doing some historical detective work, scholars seem pretty certain that the two earlier, more devastating outbreaks of disease in the Western world are a pretty good match of, for the epidemic that occurred in 1894 in Asia. For example, let's look at the plague of Justinian. Contemporary accounts suggest the disease originated in China, once again, shocker, and then moved with rats along trade routes to Egypt and Constantinople. The plague first appeared around 541 and is called the Plague of Justinius because the emperor himself contracted the plague, but was lucky enough to survive. Now, the Black Death of the 14th century seems in most ways to be the same disease that Justinian and his empire had to deal and suffered with, and that the same also as the third pandemic that reared its ugly head again. But when it comes to the second pandemic, the great mortality of the 1340s, there are a number of puzzles and inconsistencies that keep scholars up at night. There's enough reason to wonder if perhaps there was actually other factors at work that caused this outbreak to be the most devastating the Western world has seen in all of recorded history. In recent years, many scholars have suggested that while plague may be partially responsible with, for the high mortality rates in the middle of the 14th century, the virulence and spread with which the death swept through Western Europe doesn't completely make sense if we assign only the plague as the primary cause. Complications? 
Well, scientists have discovered that about 10 to 20 percent of the population of Western Europe has a natural immunity to HIV AIDS. And that mutation accounting for this seems to be connected to having an ancestor who survived the plague. At first, this doesn't make any sense at all, as the plague is bacterial and HIV AIDS is viral. Unless what has been sweeping across the country was not only bubonic plague, but also some kind of hemorrhagic fever. One of the first medieval scholars to aggressively question the causes of black death and raise questions about its impact was the late historian David Harley, a specialist who worked extensively on medieval Italy. He noted that almost nowhere in the accounts of the medieval plague's advance does anyone mention an epizootic event. This would be a massive die-off of, say, rats, who are the black fleas' primary host, causing the fleas to jump to humans. In the case of the 19th century plague in India and China, several accounts attest to this die-off as preceding the onslaught of plague. He also went on the first to raise the point that the spread with which plague swept through the medieval world isn't satisfactorily explained by the argument that the Black Death moved along trade routes. With the exception of pneumonic plague, humans cannot infect others. So a very large number of infected rats and fleas would have had to hitch rides westward in caravans and onboard ships. Also, plagues seem to, be, to move in seasonal cycles, getting worse in the summer, disappearing for a time in the winter, and then usually reappearing when the weather warmed up. Epidemiologically, it would make more sense for winter to be the worst time of the infection. Everyone is indoors, humans and rats side by side, increasing the chances of plague transmission. But that's not what tended to happen. There are other factors complicating the argument that what struck the medieval world in the 14th century was only bubonic plague. For example, in Florence, Italy, starting in 1377, after the first big wave of plague had ravaged the region, region those who were responsible for preparing bodies for burial would note in the Libra de Morte, or Books of the Dead, which had been the cause of the death when it could be determined. So, what could it have been an additional uh, to the bubonic plague? How about anthrax? And I'm not talking the heavy metal band. I'm talking about the stuff that got mailed. The, yes, anthrax. In 1984, an epidemiologist special a specialist named Graham Twigg, published that was, at the time, considered a radical rethinking of the cause of the Black Death. He argued that most of the medieval epidemics uh, were not the plague at all, but in fact were caused by exposure to anthrax. Anthrax is a bacillus, like Yersinius pestis, and is found to be naturally occurring on every continent, including the ice parts. Infection usually occurs when grazing animals inhale the bacillus anthracia spores. This infection jumps to humans if we consume meat from infected animals. You can also contract anthrax if you come into contact with the clothing or shoes of someone who has encountered anthrax spores out in nature. It's the hardiness of the anthrax spores that has attracted modern interest in, the, in them as a bi biological weapons. In fact, Live anthrax spores have been discovered in the soil covering an animal that died of the disease 70 years earlier. In the mid-19th century, 
Louis Pasteur came up with a vaccine for anthrax. Prior to that, it was a regular occurrence for thousands of animals and humans to die from anthrax every year. While anthrax is considered to be under control in most of the developed world, infection still does occur to this day in parts of the globe that don't have much in the way of veterinarian infrastructure. If you inhale anthrax spores, you usually have some flu-like symptoms for a few days, then severe pneumonia and respiratory collapse. Symptoms that sound a little awful like the pneumonic form of the plague. And if you eat infected meat, you have serious gastronidal issues and end up vomiting up blood, which once again sounds like a lot of the symptoms sometimes associated with all three forms of the plague. Even more to the point, boils and lesions often show up on the bodies of those infected. Historically, it's estimated that fatality rates for anthrax were around 85%. In their modern period, if anthrax is diagnosed and treated quickly, the fatality rate is closer to 40%. Again, sounds a lot like plague. Historian Norman Cantor points out that anthrax spores have been found in a plague pit or mass grave, dating from the Middle Ages in Scotland, and there is evidence the meat from slaughtered moraine infected cattle was sold in villages in England shortly before the first big outbreak there in 1348. Now, moraine was originally a medieval word that at first just meant death, but underwent some linguistic specialization and came to mean any disease that affected cattle and sheep. And another possibility? Tonight on The Lost Wonder, we talk space and science. Yes, we're, we're, going, we're headed to space. One of the most interesting theories about plague is that it comes from space. This theory was first proposed in 1979 by Fred Hoyle, an astrophysicist who had a long career at Cambridge University and Nalan Chandra Wickramashi, sorry, India, please forgive me, and their co-authored book, Diseases from Space. Their theories rest on something called panspermia, which is the idea that the seeds of life exist throughout the universe, and those seeds move through the galaxies as part of comets, asteroids, and other such bodies. When those bodies crash into a planet like ours, sometimes carrying with them bacteria that can cause disease, we have what Hoyle and them call vertical transmission. They both argue that bubonic plague seems to be a likely candidate for a disease that was vertically transmitted from space. They claim that this explains why plague appeared in the 6th century, then again in the 14th, and then again in the 19th, with such long gaps in between outbreaks. Where was Yersinius pestis hiding all that time? Well, their answer, it was not on Earth. Indeed, while the authors acknowledge the role the black rat played in the outbreak, outbreak of the Black Death, they also are quick to point out flaws in the theory that these rodents were the main means of transmission. There was no marching army of plague-stricken rats. The rats died in space in, in, in the places where they were. Now, Dr. Chris Patel, a biologist who also is one of the select 100 people who, was, who were uh, currently training for the Mars One program, says he might cautiously agree that the idea that life on Earth, at least some of it, might have originated elsewhere, that, that gives some points in their favor. But at the same, same time, the specifics of the two theory is considered very fringe by the scientific community at large. And pretty much every mainstream scientist feels that that theory doesn't hold water, and it certainly can't be proved yet. 
So while largely unlikely, it is at least a very interesting idea. And the fact they're still researching it is, is fascinating to me. And are there any other reasons? Well, there is good reason for there to be such doubt surrounding the theory that Yersinius pestis is the primary cause of the Black Death. One point that scholars and scientists return to again and again, as you've seen, is the problem of the means of transmission. The black rat did not suddenly decide to migrate west, then south, then northwest, and then back east again, all of a sudden in 1346. It's not like they got a pilgrimage order or anything like that. There also doesn't seem to be a logical correlation between outbreaks and the seasons. For example, some of the worst outbreaks occurred during really hot Mediterranean summers in Italy, but that's exactly when rat fleas were least likely to be thriving. Plague also was reported to have occurred in Scandinavia in the dead of winter. In early 2015, a study came out of the University of Oslo suggesting that black rats or any rats may not have been responsible at all. The study published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, demonstrated that plague outbreaks in Europe don't correspond to weather in Europe. The outbreaks seem to have a correlation to weather in Asia, particularly to years when there were wet springs and warm summers. Most scholars agree that the outbreaks seem to have originated in Asia and moved west along the trade route, but these weather patterns are not conducive to breeding black rats. Therefore, the dominant theory seems to not quite fit, unless you turn to a different rodent that carries fleas. And that rodent, the authors argue, was the gerbil. Go ahead, take a minute to laugh. Gerbils. The authors of the study say that there was a spat of weather that provided an ideal breeding climate for gerbils and, of course, their fleas. This period was predictably followed by outbreaks of plague moving west. Again, there seems to be more than a few possible holes in this theory, but no one theory adequately explains how and why the plague showed up when it did, moves as quickly as it did, and killed as many people as it did, and then, bye-bye, disappeared. Many people have pointed out that for as deadly as the plague was in the 14th century, it seemed rather a weak shadow of the Black Death when it actually reappeared in late 19th century. To explain this, some scientists have proposed that the modern plague was caused by an evolutionary, uh, much weaker form of the Yersinius pestis. This would make sense because the medieval form of plague was so virulent. It would seem that unless it moved into a less deadly form, it was actually at risk of wiping itself and killing its potential host. So those are just some of the theories and ideas of what could have caused the Black Death and or bubonic plague. And it's just crazy that we are still trying to figure out what the real cause of the most devastating pandemic in the history of the world was. And this is just part one of In the Crease Presents the Bubonic Plague and Black Death. In two weeks, we will continue this conversation with topics including the use of the plague as a biological weapon, what theories actually existed during the medieval times themselves, the persecution of the Jews during 
this time, and eventually how it transformed the world in the aftermath. So that's it for tonight's show. Thank you for tuning in for this episode. I truly do appreciate it. You can find me at Stoner Brewing Co. or the underscore crease on Twitter. Catch me this upcoming Friday at 11 p.m. for The Lost Wonder, where I will talk space and galactic news and hopefully not anything about panspermia plagues. Stay tuned for the wonderful Alan Ray with Circumspice, the right side of Michigan. I am J-E-double-F. This is In the Crease. Namaste. Good night, friends. And don't panic. I hurt myself today To see if I still feel I focus on the pain the only thing that's real The needle tears a hole The old familiar sting Try to kill it all away But I remember everything What have I become? My sweetest friend Everyone I know Goes away In the air With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.